Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. I had those same misconceptions, and I'm Jewish myself. So, and most Jewish people who live in big cities would also be surprised to find out about small Jewish communities because that's not part of their experience. Appalachia meets world podcast about place and perspective but always Appalachian and don't forget Will tonight's episode is powered by SOAR shaping our Appalachian region if you're a entrepreneur out there especially in eastern Kentucky check them out Appalachian meets world we're back it's Will and Neil what up man so we got that grin on your face for man I don't know I'm just happy to be here Willie Raining all week. It's nasty it? outside. Glad I'm indoors. Yeah, it's not really cold, but just rain, 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 rain. It's all I've had all week. I'm sick of it. I, this time of year, I want, I want snow. I was getting ready to say, would you rather have snow or rain? Thousand percent, rather have snow always. Really? Yes. I, even in the summer, I would rather it be snow than rain. I hate <laughs> the rain. Uh, you know it can't snow in the summer, right? I, I realize that, but if like. You're like Olaf from yeah. Frozen. You, 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 even in the summer, you, you don't even realize that the sun will melt snow. You just want snow all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm <laughs> Olaf. Call me Olaf. I don't care. I'm starting to look like him in my old age. Appalachian Olaf. Yeah. I, I like snow on December 25th, uh, maybe the 26th, maybe even through the first uh, of the year. That's about it. Got any uh, chicken updates for me? Trying to get the chickens prepared for a cold winter. You know, you got to make the modifications to the coop. Just hope that they survive. Chickens don't really like the snow as much as you do, huh? They don't mind the rain. You know, they're opposite of me. But the snow, they they really, uh, they're nah. not built for it. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm built for it. They're, they're not built for it. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> Uh, I got a little app news for you tonight. Oh yeah, I got, I got, I got a little app news too. Will you, you go first? Why don't you go first, and then I, I'll uh, spit out my app news. I just heard about something today that happened in Appalachia, and I, I, I mean, I feel like it's newsworthy. You know what I mean? Sure. Almost Christmas. It's the giving season. There's an individual in Eastern Kentucky. I don't know this individual. I don't know anybody that does, but anonymously donated. In Bell County, Kentucky, right in the heart of uh, Appalachia, donated $125 gift cards to every kindergarten through fifth grade student in that county. Wow. So, you know, well, it's not a huge county, but I know there's at least 2,000 students that age. So you think about it. I mean, whoever this guy is or, or, or girl donated at least $250,000 in gift cards for families around the holidays that 
the gift cards were to a uh, grocery store. They're assuring the kids food for Christmas, which is amazing in my opinion. That's awesome. Or, or even food over the holiday break. You know, when they're out of school, that's the hardest time for kids that, that, that can't access food when they're out of school. So that, that's perfect for that too. Yeah, there's so many kids throughout all of Appalachia, but especially in uh, eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, Virginia, that go an entire weekend without food when they're when they're you know out of school we know this growing up with with our mother who would come home and frequently tell us stories from her job that we really had a hard time believing but there's a lot of truth in it i see it all the time now kudos to this individual whoever they are out there that stepped up and made sure that lots of kids in bell county had an opportunity to have plenty of plenty of good food for the holidays yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, what you got, man? What you got? I saw that the Kentucky, uh, the governor, but the Kentucky government, they're looking at land in Knott County, Letcher County, Perry County, and Breathitt County as sites to rebuild housing, schools, senior housing, medical clinics outside of the floodplains. So in all these counties that suffered during the floods, they're working with FEMA looking to acquire land outside the floodplain and try to rebuild and revision some of these communities. To date, there's still 700 people in those travel trailers. There are 82 pending requests for housing, uh, and the park systems there are still housing. As of September 1st, they were housing 360 people. Now they're only housing 130 people. I say only, but that's still a lot. And they're also going to be bringing Wi-Fi to all the state parks in that area so people can have access for that. So I think that's all awesome in regards to the flooding and the recovery there. So what you're telling me is they're trying to to rebuild entire communities outside of the floodplains? Outside of the floodplain, they're trying to acquire some land. So it won't be an entire rebuild, but things like government controlled building like schools, like medical clinics, but also some senior housing and potential individual housing. Also wanted to mention quickly the ARC. They're accepting their applications for the summer study programs in entrepreneurship and STEM. I know we've mentioned this. We mentioned this last year when they were putting together the applications, but it's for middle and high school students. It's their Appalachian Entrepreneurship Academy and Appalachian STEM Academy. So I wanted to mention that because the deadline is February 10th. I know that sounds like it's uh, far away, but after the holidays, it creeps up on you. Man, I heard uh, one of my friends today say that it seems like years are going by uh, in a matter of weeks. (laughs) As I I get older, I'm I really feel like that. That's very true. Feels that way. I think anyway. it's. I think it's post COVID. Like during COVID, I, I felt like it took forever for weeks to go by. But now yeah. that we're out in the in the world again, we got conditioned for a period of time to of doing nothing and being stuck, and now we're like thrown back into the mix, and it's freaked us all out. Yeah, no, right. I wanted to also mention an exhibit. That just opened up, uh, opened up in November. I think it's running into the fall of 2023, so you have plenty of time to see it. But I thought it was a pretty cool idea. It's by the Jonesboro, Washington County History Museum. It's called Eight Myths About Appalachia. It debuted on November 
22nd. It's this exhibit about the stereotypes of Appalachia, about the myths of Appalachia. Dr. Megan Cullen Tawell, I think that's how you pronounce her name. She's of the Heritage Alliance. She put it together. It's evidence-based. Maybe it's housed in the Jonesboro Visitor Center. If you can go online and check some of it out, we'll put it in the show notes. But it's eight myths about Appalachia. So if you're in that area, check it out. Cool. Uh, That sounds very interesting. Another thing, you know, I just spent a week in Chattanooga with the Appalachian Leadership Institute, something that I cannot recommend highly enough. But as part of that, for the week, we got to tour the Volkswagen facility in Chattanooga. It's really an incredible facility that Volkswagen has. They chose to put it in Chattanooga, but they make EV cars there. Uh, in the heart of Appalachia. But I wanted to mention that because there's this new initiative, Rural Reimagined, Building an EV Ecosystem in Appalachia. So the Tennessee Technological University and WVU Energy Institute and, and West Virginia Clean Cities Program just put a EV van in the Fairmont Marion County Transit authority so it's their first ev van to have access in the county which i thought was pretty cool but the really cool part this rural reimagining building an ev ecosystem in appalachia is this network of 60 partners across five states rural-reimagine.com they're trying to bring the ev ecosystem to rural underserved appalachian counties so the idea, they have $8 million, it's an $8 million effort. They're going to be bringing 25 EV cars and 250 charging stations to the area. But the coolest thing about it is if you're in one of those states, if you're in the eligible counties, you can go online and you can request to drive an EV car for two weeks. So I think we should get you signed up, Neil. How do I sign up for this, Will? Uh, I'm I'm all about it. I've been I've been trying to get in the EV car since they first came out. So it's rural-reimagined.com. It's the National Energy Technology Lab, which some people refer to as Nettle. It's part of the U.S. Department of Energy, but they're really driving this initiative with the 60, like I mentioned, 60 partners across five states. Amazing! I got to do it. One other last bit of app news that I have. There's this little short 20-minute, you can call it a documentary. It's like a news piece, but it's called Appalachian Christmas. It actually, I think, came out in 2019, but they, I think they redo it every year. But it's a cool little documentary about the history of Christmas in Appalachia. It has everything from the Biltmore to Dollywood to local schools to tree farms to the Museum of Appalachia to small-town traditions. Just really cool 20-minute wbir.com has it as their holiday special we'll put it in the show notes but if you get a chance if you got 20 minutes to spare check it out it just uh shows about the christmas season the traditions of christmas i wanted to bring that up because on monday there's something that's coming up that you and i don't celebrate and don't really think about all that much and know very little about honestly yeah and that is hanukkah Mm mm-hmm 
you know, there are several Jewish communities within Appalachia. We all, you know, we're all about talking about diversity on this show. So as part of that, we wanted to bring someone in to talk about the Jewish community in Appalachia. Yeah, I'm guessing that's not why you had me on the show tonight. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I know there's more qualified people out there. So if that's the direction we're going, let, let's let the let's let our guests speak about it. I don't even want to attempt it. Yeah, it's Dr. Deb Weiner. She wrote the book, Co-Filled Jews in Appalachian History. So we wanted to have her on to not only talk about her book, but talk about the Jewish community within Appalachia. You know, the way you and I grew up, we didn't, I don't think I knew a Jewish person until I moved out of the county that we lived in. I mean, they could have, they could have been there. There just wasn't a huge presence that allowed me to learn more about that uh, culture and that background. So uh, looking forward to the conversation with uh, our guest. Yeah, definitely. You want to get her on here and let her talk about the Cofield Jews in Appalachian history. Yes, sir. Let's do it. All right. On today's show, we have a special guest, Dr. Deborah Weiner. Uh, she's a native Chicagoan. However, she moved to West Virginia in the early 90s to attend grad school where she got a PhD in history from West Virginia University. From there, she moved to Baltimore in 2002. She became a professor for several of the universities there. But now she's a Baltimore-based consultant and professional historian. And why we really wanted to speak to her today, she's the author of the book, Co-Filled Jews in Appalachian History. So, Dr. Weiner, do you mind if we call you Deb? Sure, that's fine. Thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. No problem. One question that we kind of kick off our show with, as most Appalachians are big on tradition, big on history, our family is as well. And one of those traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. Usually we have this huge spread of appetizers, bigger than the actual meal that we eat. <laughs> so we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? <laughs> uh, well, my favorite appetizer, probably uh, artichoke dip. I love nice. a good artichoke dip with a good bread, you know, a crusty bread to go with it. Uh, I was about to ask, what what do you dip in? So you go with the, you go with the bread. Yeah, sourdough is good, but any kind of like good crusty bread. Not just the classic Tostitos. Nope. <laughs> Although I, I can eat some Tostitos too. That's that's good. We've talked about it before on this show, but the multi-grain Tostitos are the way to go. Oh, okay. I have never try tried those. those. Try those out. Neil got me hooked. I had never tried them either, but yeah, he's right. They're better. Uh-huh. Sorry, the food, the food questions are always my favorite. <laughs> Now that we have that question out of the way, we we wanted to just dive into your book. You know, first, why did you decide to write the book? What interests you about the topic and and kind of the relationship to Appalachia and the Jewish community? Okay, well, I know you talk a lot about Appalachian stereotypes. So why I wrote the book is very much related to that. Basically, I I moved to West Virginia from Chicago in the 90s to do a, a master's in public history. Public history means basically doing history in the public realm as opposed to as an um, academic. 
I wanted to like work on with history museums and that kind of thing. And WVU had a very good program in that. Uh, and I was just going to stay for a couple of years and, and get that master's. I went there and, you know, and I always, I think, was interested in the whole idea of mountains. Chicago is basically the flattest place on earth. Um, <laughs> and I just thought I really would like to try, you know, going to a different environment. I moved to Morgantown and I really liked there. And one day, like just oh, like a month or two after I got there, a friend and I decided to go down to Clarksburg, which is about 35 miles south of Morgantown. And they had something called the Italian Festival in Clarksburg. You know, I had all the stereotypes of at least Appalachia being homogeneous. Yeah. Um, that was definitely something that was in my head. And I thought, hmm, an Italian festival in Clarksburg. I didn't know that there were Italians in <laughs> West Virginia. So I went down to Clarksburg with this friend and we were walking around. And I saw actually a synagogue on the edge of town. And that really got me because <clears throat> being Jewish myself, and from Chicago, um, I definitely didn't think there would be a synagogue in a place like Clarksburg. Um, now, Morgantown had a Jewish community because there were academics there. And so, you know, that was not a surprise. But Clarksburg, having this uh, Jewish community really shocked me. You know, I'm guilty of having the same stereotypes that a lot of people have about Appalachia. So that was just in the back of my head. And then I happened to be taking a class on how to do local history as part of the public history degree. And we had to select a topic of local history to find out more about and to do, you know, to get into local history sources and to learn how to do things like oral history and that kind of thing. So I thought, well, I'll satisfy my curiosity and find out what the synagogue is doing in Clarksburg. And from there, I, you know, I did research into that community and found out all about it. And then I was just like hooked. And I, uh, from there, it just grew and you know, I found out that my stereotypes were not true at all, and that there were Jewish communities in other parts of the region as well. The next thing that happened was that uh, Ron Lewis, who's a great Appalachian scholar, he had found out about my work, and he just casually mentioned to me, well, you know, Jewish communities, that would make a good topic for a dissertation. So instead of getting my master's in two years and leaving the region, I ended up staying for almost 10 years and doing a PhD. And I transferred my research to the Southern coal fields. Clarksburg ended up, didn't, it didn't become part of my book. Instead, I focused on uh, towns like Beckley and Middlesbrough, Kentucky, Pocahontas, Virginia, and towns in West Virginia like Williamson and Logan. I just got really fascinated by it. And that's what ended up happening. I, I wanted to ask about that. You know, you talk about misconceptions. I think I also have misconceptions about the Jewish community. You know, I, I didn't grow up in a town. I, I grew up in Pine Bowl right next to Millsboro, but there were no synagogues or temples where I grew up. We, we did not get out of school for Jewish holidays. It, it was just one of those things. I don't even know if I knew that I knew of a Jewish person in my community when I grew up. But some of the misconceptions that I have are that Jewish people always live in larger communities. That, that's just something, you know, where they gravitated to, where, where they could make a living, where the academics, as you mentioned earlier, were. But that is a that is a big misconception, especially the coal fields. You know, you focused on 11 counties in the coal fields. Was there a reason that you focused on the smaller communities? Uh, yeah. Well, first, in regard to misconceptions about Jews, I had those same misconceptions and I'm <laughs> Jewish myself. So and in most Jewish people who live in 
big cities would also be surprised to find out about small Jewish communities because that's not part of their experience. So yeah, it was it was a chance to sort of dispel misconceptions about two different groups of people. One is Appalachians and the other is American Jews. There's a whole field of studying American Jewish history that talks about small Jewish communities in smaller towns. But no matter how long that's been going on, if you ask a Jewish person in a larger city, they would find it very surprising, even to this day, that, that Jews lived in small towns. I got interested in Coalfield history through just going further in, in Appalachian studies. And it just struck me, first of all, that the Southern Coalfields, they happened to be developed at the, at the same time that Jewish immigrants were coming into this country. Immigrants who were looking for opportunity and a lot of times, you know, would go out into the, into the countryside. And it just so happened that there was sort of this small stream of people going into that particular area because that was the area that was being opened, uh, largely because of the railroads that had come in. So you had kind of a cohesive story to tell about the southern coal fields. And that's why I ended up focusing there. And I was also interested in talking about the relationship between the coal industry and these Jewish communities, uh, which ended up being a whole separate part of the book. Just confining it to that particular area helped to focus in on that discussion as well. And the, the Jewish community that did gravitate to this area, they did not gravitate to the area as most people did. A lot of people gravitated to the area, especially from Eastern Europe, to work in the coal mines. Whereas the Jewish community, they were merchants, they were part of the community, but they weren't necessarily miners in the coal fields. Is that what you found through your research? Yeah, they were merchants, but they did come because of the coal boom. They became, they came explicitly because of the coal boom. Because what you had was you had these communities that had sudden increases in population. As soon as a railroad would get to a certain place, the coal mines would open up and there weren't enough local people to mine the coal. So the companies recruited, they recruited Blacks from further south, and they recruited immigrants who were coming into New York and Baltimore. And so all of a sudden, you had this large population of people and not that many, you know, retail services. So this was an opportunity for people to open stores and, and that kind of thing. The reason Jews came mostly as retailers and not as coal miners, most immigrants are part of networks. They don't just come randomly and do things randomly. When Jews came to America, uh, it's usually, you know, a few people come first and then they bring other people and they bring other people and they get their opportunities, their economic opportunities from their surrounding networks of people who help them. In Europe, Jews had been sort of confined to the retail sector for, for centuries. They hadn't been able to own land and they, they weren't peasants who would work the land. So they had this niche that they kind of brought with them. And when immigrants came to this country, some Jewish merchants settled in cities and they were able to actually start to expand and think about expanding their businesses. And they would send like relatives or other Jewish immigrants out further out to the countryside so that they could expand their markets. And these are the people who went as peddlers and would actually end up finding opportunity. They'd go out as peddlers and end up actually settling in these places and, and opening stores. And in fact, there was one Jewish man in Baltimore who owned a wholesale house called the Baltimore Bargain House. 
he came, he was an immigrant from Lithuania and he came to Baltimore, started out, you know, as a teenager with a small store and ended up with this big wholesale house. And he knew that the coal fields were being developed right around the same time he was building up his, his wholesale business. And he was responsible for sending many of the people who ended up settling in Southern West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky. So it was because of the coal boom, but it wasn't to be coal miners. Yeah, that's very interesting. I also know your book touches on identity through your research. How did the Jewish community, how did they separate that Appalachian identity from the Jewish identity? And were the, were the Jewish community in smaller, in smaller towns, was it a little bit different for them than the Jewish community in larger towns? I'm assuming it, it, it wasn't the same, you know, things like just finding kosher in a smaller community was probably much harder or, or maybe non-existent than the larger communities. So just finding that identity, separating the two, was that something that your book touched on or focused on? Yes, uh, very much. I th- was interested in, you know, how people maintain their Jewish identity in places where it's, where there's such a small minority. And again, some of it was because of these networks, uh, Jews came to the region and they established these some small communities in places where they had enough people to do so. And they also integrated socially into the life of their communities, uh, but they wanted to remain Jewish and they wanted to uh, be able to, you know, still keep some of the same traditions. And especially they wanted to pass uh, their Jewish heritage onto their children. It was not easy to do this. One way was because they had these networks, they could always you know, travel back to Baltimore and so they'd get goods for the holidays and bring them back. One of the stories that was told to me many times was that they would order kosher meat by train, but by the time it got to the to their house, it was already spoiled. So they they ended up dropping a lot of things. But you know, American Jews everywhere were were dropping a lot of traditions. Most Jews, certainly in the second generation, didn't keep kosher. Just like everywhere else in America, Jews had to adapt to their local environment and try to keep their Jewish identity. And everybody has their own different sort of recipe for for doing that, you might say. People who are very religious would not really be able to stay in the region if they wanted to really maintain, you know, all the traditions. That really wasn't possible. But that wasn't, you know, what most American Jews did anywhere. So it was a question of, you know, making compromises here and there. And also forming their own communities really helped them support each other in maintaining their traditions, starting a Sunday school for the kids. That was really the most important concern was, as I said before, to pass their Jewish heritage on. And so having some kind of Jewish education was was key. And a lot of times that's why they might even want to form a, a congregation. I think when I, I grew up, I just I just didn't know what I what I didn't know. I, I didn't really see any signs of anti-Semitism or any type uh, type of discrim- discrimination in that regard of when I when I grew up. But did you find any type of discrimination through your research in, in the smaller coal coal fields? I found that you know there was some anti-Semitism, but not not any more that you'd find in in other places. One reason that Jews were very much accepted for the most part was that in many cases, Jews came right at the beginning of the coal boom. They were there from the beginning of some of these towns. So they weren't like these strangers or interlopers. They, they were town founders even, because some of these towns were 
pretty new. Middlesbrough, for example, was founded what, in the 1880s, something like that. Pocahontas, Virginia was just, you know, a train station. You know, so the people who gathered in these, uh, especially in these boom towns, first of all, they were very diverse. Jews weren't the only people of a different ethnicity. Uh, you had, like I said, Italians. That's why there were Italians in Clarksburg. They came to mine coal up there. So you had Italians, you had Hungarians, you had Greeks, you had, and the Blacks, of course, came too to, to be coal miners. So in a diverse place that's just starting out, there's going to be less sort of anti-Semitism or people being singled out for being Jewish. Yeah. In terms of, you know, not seeing signs of Judaism when where you were growing up, it, it happens that Middlesbrough did not, they didn't build their own synagogue, but they did have a congregation that was located in the Masonic Hall. I, I know recently that they uh, dedicated their, they have a Jewish cemetery in Middlesbrough. They dedicated on the National uh, Register, yes. Historic Register, just recently. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The cemetery there, you can go and see. A young guy who's one of, whose grand, great-grandparents came to the region, he got interested in his family history, and he's the one who ended up sort of writing the National Register nomination to get the cemetery on, on the National Register. That was a pretty cool story. Uh, so yeah, that is one thing that you can see. And the Middlesbrough Cemetery is actually maintained by the Jewish congregation in Knoxville, which isn't that far away, really. It's just over the state line, but it's it's not that far. Well, Neil and I grew up in Pineville. We had, I know we spoke earlier, we had no idea there was a large Jewish community in Pineville. Well, I wouldn't call it large, but it's, it's <laughs> kind of an interesting, yeah. yeah. So Pineville had this really interesting case of this family moved in. They were called the Eusters. And in fact, the uh, young man I was talking about who did the uh, Mildegorl Cemetery was, was part of the Eusters uh, family. But the Eusters had, when this, I think it was like a widow in the early 1900s or late 1890s, she had five sons. And so the whole town of Pineville, the Jewish community was actually sort of like the cousins of all the Eusters <laughs> was the main, you know, that was the main part. And there were a few other families that came too. They never had a congregation, I think, because they would go to Middlesbrough for services and then that kind of thing. They integrated pretty well into Pineville. And one Euster who would, would be like a grandson of the original widow who came with her five kids ended up becoming the mayor of Pineville, I think, in the 30s. So Pineville had a Jewish mayor. And the other interesting thing is nice. when I was doing my research on, on Pineville, there were, I think, in like the 1920 census, there was like six or seven families. There were like five kids all with the same name, Abe Euster. <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and that was because people would name, it's a custom among Jews to name your child after a recently deceased person so obviously her you know the grandfather died and then each family named one of the sons after after him <laughs> and so you have this small town with this small jewish community with kids all having the same with several kids having the same name i thought that was pretty fun and one of them kate became the mayor and i can't tell you which one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very interesting just, I, maybe through your own personal experience, not even through your research, do you see similarities in Appalachia heritage and Jewish heritage or culture? I know Appalachians tend to have strong family connections, family ties, as I assume the Jewish community does as well. But did you see? Do you see similarities in the two? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I think that the strong emphasis on family is definitely one thing. In in those generations, having a lot of kids was also um, a thing that they they had in common. 
in Appalachia and other sort of rural areas at that time, and I think it's a little bit true today too, there was kind of a, an, you know, it's an emphasis on the Old Testament, some of the Christians really being interested in Judaism because it represented the roots of, of Christianity. And so people actually had an interest in the Hebrew Bible in common. And there were some stories of Jewish merchants who would be asked, you know, their opinion about things related to the Bible, because it's like, well, we have, we have a representative of that very religion right here among us. Let's go ask him about, you know, some chapter or verse or, or something like that in, in the Hebrew Bible. So that kind of scripture actually also was somewhat of a similarity. Of course, Jews were not at all interested in the New Testament. At least they shared the Old Testament version. One yeah. question that, that we always ask our guests, and, and, you know, I know you didn't, you're not necessarily from the region, but you've been in Appalachia for, what's the first thing that comes to mind when, when you hear that word? Or what's, what's the first thing that rolls off the tongue when you hear the word Appalachia? Well, mountains, <laughs> of course. I mean, that's obviously, you know, too obvious. Just small communities and um, the way the mountains affect the, the way people live and the way they organize Will their lives. Will and I love to say that, that there's something magic in those mountains. Yeah. I, I think that yeah. rings true for all of us. And, you know, also and it's the attachment to the mountains is obviously so strong. Uh, you know, when I moved to the region and met people from, from Appalachia, maybe talk to their families, the attachment to the place, the place where they grew up was really strong and stronger than you, I think, find in other places. Yeah, Neil and I would also argue that point. Uh, another question that we ask all our guests, you know, place and perspective is kind of what we ground this podcast on. It's really important to us, like you mentioned, really important to Appalachia and Appalachians. But one of the questions that we ask is just, where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? Mm -hmm. I'm from Chicago originally. I lived in Appalachia for a while and uh, about 10 years, and I've lived in Baltimore for many years. But there's still part of me that really feels like Chicago is home. I grew up there, you know, left there in my 30s, and I've lived away longer than I've lived there. Uh, but still, I feel like, you know, I think I, I would have to say Chicago. Yeah, it's always interesting to hear different perspectives to that question. Um, people, people have different feelings towards home and where they call home. And it's always interesting. I, I just had a couple of quick questions, just maybe to get to know you a little, a little bit more or the Jewish culture a little bit more. But I, I know there are several, obviously, Jewish traditions, several Jewish holidays. But do you have a do you have a favorite Jewish holiday? Well, my favorite holiday uh, has always been Passover because that's the most family oriented holiday. <laughs> and also it's got the best food. <laughs> and, that, was, uh, that was my next question. Do you have a favorite Jewish delicacy or food? Well, I love chopped liver. <laughs> that, that can actually happen at any holiday. But um, matzo ball soup. And that's that's a Passover thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. That is really good. I'm not going to lie. I have had yeah. <laughs> uh, Do you have a favorite tradition? Maybe it's not a Jewish tradition, but uh, I know we already mentioned holidays, but do you have a favorite tradition? Well, I think, you know, the Passover Seder is, is a tradition that's very important to me. So, I mean, that stands out as in terms of Jewish traditions as, as the one that's most important to me. I know you lived in West Virginia for a while. Did they have tutors while you lived there? Tutors? Hooters Biscuit World? 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We always ask people what they like better, biscuits or cornbread. Oh, that's tough. I mean, neither of those are actually, you know, things I grew up with that much. And I like both. When they're homemade, a good homemade cornbread is hard to beat, I'd say. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you there. But I, I a good good homemade biscuits are are up there too. But. Yeah, Neil's answer is always both. So I don't, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you can go wrong there. The biscuits need gravy though. It's yeah. not just biscuits. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's got to be biscuits and gravy. There you go. I, I wanted to see if you had... Anything else to add to maybe some of the misconceptions that people have about the Jewish community, especially in small towns? Uh, anything, anything you'd like to add before we let you go? The communities that I talked about mostly are gone, but there are still centers of Jewish life in the region. They happen to be in uh, larger cities and also in uh, college towns. Um, like Charleston, West Virginia has a very strong Jewish community, places like Asheville, North Carolina. So there are still Jews in the region. In, in the smaller towns, Jews, where there were places where Jews could continue some kind of economic life, there remain Jewish communities. Because what happens when the coal fields, when the coal industry changed and so many coal miners had to leave the region and starting in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, merchants basically lost their customers and the retail sector fell. And, you know, on the rise of Walmarts and things like that, the family businesses sort of died out and many Jews left for that reason, but stayed in places where they could maintain some kind of economic life. So college towns with academics, towns with major hospital centers, the Jewish communities today are not merchant based like they used to be. They're professionals, they're academics or doctors and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and Beckley is one of the one of the small communities that I studied that maintains a, um, a Jewish congregation because it became a center for sort of the tourism industry in southern West Virginia and uh, has enough of a you know commercial life and a hospital and doctors and that kind of thing. Well it's extremely interesting. Obviously Hanukkah's coming up over the weekend, the first day so we want to say happy Hanukkah. Um, oh, thank you. But also uh, appreciate your time. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, but also sharing your research uh, with us uh, today and being here and, and for all that you do. Thanks. I've enjoyed talking to you. Will, man, Deb. Dropping all kinds of knowledge on us tonight about the Jewish communities within this big community of Appalachia. So very, very interesting to hear her perspective and uh, listen to uh, about all of her great research she's done over over the last, gosh, I don't know how many years. Well, there's so much I didn't know, even, even in the places that we grew up, Pineville, Middlesboro, about the Jewish community that, you know, once was there. Like we've said hundreds of times on this show, Appalachia is much more diverse than people think. And, you know, even outside of the larger metropolitan areas within Appalachia, these small communities have smaller Jewish communities as well. It's just something that we really didn't know about growing up. No, I can't wait to ask our uncle, who's the mayor of one of the small towns in Appalachia that, that she mentioned, Pineville, Kentucky. I can't wait to ask him that history if he knew that there was a Jewish mayor in Pineville, Kentucky at one time. I know, back in the 30s. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool story. Hey, 
we had this episode really to talk about the diversity, but also to say happy Hanukkah to the Jewish community. Hanukkah is on Monday. Christmas is something we celebrate, but whatever you celebrate out there, you can find it throughout the region. Uh, Monday is the first day of Hanukkah. Absolutely. It's a great, great talk, Will. Great discussion. Really appreciative of uh, Deb coming on and joining us. Well, you know, we mentioned her book several times, but I just want to give it a shout out uh, one more time. It might be, I think it either is the only book about the Jewish community in Appalachia or one of the few books about the Jewish community within Appalachia. So if nothing else, that's pretty cool in and of itself. So check it out. Jump on Amazon right now while you're listening to this uh, to this podcast. You can order your copy today for get it in time for Christmas. Or the University of Illinois Press, I know, sells it directly. With that being said, Will, moving into our last segment, do you, is there an app biz of the week you'd like to highlight? I, I think we mentioned, you know, since we're coming into the holiday season with Hanukkah coming up, but also, you know, we celebrate Christmas. And next week, I know we'll have our annual Christmas poem, so we won't get to well, good to have an app biz, so uh, maybe I'll throw out an app biz for the Hanukkah season, and you can throw out one for the Christmas season. Uh, yeah, I can go with that. Sounds good to me. So I wanted to highlight, it's called the Yesod, to be honest, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but Yesod Farm <laughs> and Kitchen. It's in Fairview, North Carolina. It's one of several small Jewish-owned farms in southern Appalachia. They actually actually practice a Jewish tradition in regards to farming they, the land. For every seven years, land is supposed to lay fallow and everything that's produced given to the hungry. You could only lease land for 49 years. One, so one family can't continue to acquire more and more property. It's all about fostering sustainable farming. So it's just 25 minutes outside of Asheville, North Carolina, S.J. Selden is the the founder, the steward in residence, but also the board chair of Jewish Farmer Network, a nonprofit that connects the Jewish agrarians to community education and resources in regards to farming. So they they have event space, education at the intersection of Judaism and agriculture. And they offer free produce to people experiencing food insecurity. So how cool is that? That's really neat. I mentioned earlier some big time giving going on in Appalachia. That's that's giving all, all year round. So I like it. I'm glad we highlighted them. It's www.yesodfarm.org. What at biz do you have? Man, in the in the in the Christmas spirit. I wanted to highlight a uh, a cookie company. Actually, will it's called Appalachia Cookie Company. It's in Boone, North Carolina. So this guy who was a college student over there at Appalachian State, uh, David Holloman is his name. He used to eat a lot of late night pizzas. Apparently, and decided, <laughs> hey man, <laughs> I might like cookies instead. Honestly, that's his story. So uh, literally from, you know, as he likes to say and mention from humble beginnings, he's become a national brand. You know, his cookies are, are labeled or considered to be the top 10 cookies 
in America. Whoa. So, yeah. I mean, it, we're not talking about just your run-of-the-mill cookie. Uh, I mean, this this is big time. He's figured out a way to take this brand national um, just in 10 short years, Will. Uh, 2012 is when he when he started, and uh, it's an incredible story. So before the Christmas holiday here, you got a few more days. Jump online. Go to uh, app cookie co like company app cookieco.com and uh, order some cookies for the holidays. That's awesome. That's exactly what we need to get us into Hanukkah and the Christmas holiday spirit. Absolutely, man. If Paula Dean says his cookies are good, I know I need some. (laughs) Check it out. I did want to say, no, Neil, now we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. getting lighter the air's getting thin now i'm facing down with a grin i've been in the city too long sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs now i'm back up where i belong in the mountains